Well, we live in a, in a culture where uh, there is rarely, if ever, room to criticize or correct another person. Is there anybody who, by default, actually enjoys being corrected and scrutinized just by default? Like, you, you were just born that way. You love being corrected. <laughs> Nobody was born that way. Okay, Noelle put her in. Okay, yeah. I, I believe it with you guys. I'm just kidding. The idea is that it's always, uh, always wrong to criticize, and that's reflected in a term that, uh, that some of you may be familiar with, but some of you may not be familiar with, but it's common vernacular for the younger generations, and the term that I'm referring to is hater. A hater. You guys ever heard that term? I know that you kids have. You guys have heard, you know, they'll say, don't be a hater, right? Don't be a hater. Um, a hater is someone, anyone, who dares to criticize another person or correct, try to correct another person. And it goes hand in hand with the idea that it's wrong to judge at all. Like it's always wrong to, to judge somebody else, to judge what they're doing, to judge what they believe, etc., etc., which is actually pretty silly because if you're going to say that judging is wrong, how did you reach that judgment? You have to make a judgment to judge that it's wrong to judge. Um, so, yeah, it, it's self-defeating. To, to say that it's wrong to judge, you have to judge. But people, uh, and, and I, I want to address uh, the primary objection to this right off the bat. People say that Jesus said, judge not, lest ye be judged. So don't judge anybody. And people will say, you know, only God can judge me. Um, and, and, and so I want to address that right off the bat because that's not exactly what Jesus said. What he said was that you aren't in a position to judge someone else when you're struggling with the same issues that the other person is struggling with. So basically what he said is deal with the issue that you've got first. He says deal with the log in your own eye and then you'll be able to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye or your brother's eye, right? Notice that that ends with the person being judged. Notice that that ends with the initial person who wanted to help the other person doing that, doing just that. So that passage, that, those, those verses right there, aren't about not judging. Jesus was not saying, do not judge. He was saying, don't judge hypocritically. Make sure that if you've got a problem with something, you deal with, some, with that, you know, whatever it is, before you try to correct that in another person's life. Any of you guys watch any of the football games yesterday? Yeah, I know, we'd, we'd rather be, that's why we shut off the Wi-Fi, so that you guys can't be sitting there. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, there, there's this new commercial for, for VW where um, it, it's a father and son playing catch. And the son obviously has no idea how to throw a ball. And that's where the commercial starts, with the son throwing the ball, and it goes, like, straight to the ground and rolls under the car. And the dad's like, okay, that that was pretty good. You know, we're we're, going to work on this. And then the dad goes, now watch me. And he gives this throw that looks like he's trying to do a ballet move. Obviously, the dad has no idea how to throw either. And that's the same principle that Jesus was talking about. Don't try to correct somebody if you are dealing with that same issue. Uh, in other words, don't be a hypocrite. And I thought, man, that, that commercial is like a perfect illustration for that principle. See, the person who judges or corrects or criticizes gets labeled as a hater, which I think seems like a pretty hateful thing to call someone. 
who's just trying to help, doesn't it? I mean, the term, uh, the term hater is a bit mean-spirited and malicious, but the person who offers correction or criticism doesn't always have uh, a malicious or a mean-spirited uh, intent to their criticism or their correction. For example, there's this movement among some Episcopalian churches in Florida to, uh, to, to draw people in. What they want to do is they want to shorten their services down to 30 minutes. Instead of an hour, they want to go down to 30 minutes, kind of like drive through church. And the way that they're going to do this, the, their, their plan, the way that they want to do this is, uh, is, is to knock out the sermons entirely. Now, the Episcopalian church is dying. Uh, actually, um, the, the Episcopalian denomination falls under the category of being mainline Protestant. That's like Lutherans, Episcopalians, you know, th- things like that. The, the real mainline stuff. And then we're, we're considered evangelical Christianity. We're in a different class. Uh, but mainstream Protestantism has declined so drastically and so quickly in our country. Apparently, some are willing to try just about anything to get people in the doors. Uh, how bad have they declined? In 1972, 24% of Americans said that they belonged to a mainstream Protestant denomination. In 2010, that number was under 2%. Under 2%. Meanwhile, evangelical Christianity has skyrocketed. So there, there's, a, there's a shift away from the, the mainline Protestant churches into evangelical churches. Uh, now, th- their, their response to this drop um, is to focus less on the word of God and less on application of God's word in their lives. Does that make sense to anybody? Now, now personally, I, I think that's a bad, bad idea. I think it's a really bad idea. John Stott was a famous English preacher who once said, preaching is indispensable to Christianity. Without preaching, a necessary part of its authenticity has been lost. And I completely agree. And you know what that makes me? A hater. I'm, I'm a hater. I, I'm, I'm hating on those people. For, for making what I consider to be a bad move. But um, my son, Caleb, wears this hat. I, I love this. It says, I love haters. Almost fits. I have such a big head, I hate it. But yeah, I love haters. It's a really common term today. So, uh, so anyway, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a hater. But do I offer that opinion? Do I offer that criticism? Do I offer that reproof with malicious intent? Of course not. Of course not. I I would be labeled a hater anyway, though, for disagreeing or criticizing with their uh, their ideas. Now, let me ask you what might seem like a really personal question. How do you handle criticism when it's thrown your way? See, the vast majority of people take offense to it, hence the term hater. Very few people have the integrity and the, or just the ability to look at criticism honestly and to see it as an opportunity to see and, and work on their personal faults and failures, areas of their lives where there is room for improvement, maybe even abundant room for improvement, and to grow in humility and gracefulness. So what about you? How do you handle criticism? How do you handle correction? Now, in our current study, we're taking a look at some principles from Solomon's life, which seem, like I said, like they should just be common sense. But in a world that is going terribly awry, these principles of wisdom have become anything but common. They've become uncommon. 
common. And so today we're going to be looking at the issue of handling criticism positively. Positively, that's the key word. And no, just brushing off the haters is not the correct response, nor is it uh, positive in any sense. In the book of Proverbs, the term that's most often used to refer to criticism or correction uh, is reproof. Reproof. And I, and I almost didn't use that word in the title of our sermon today because that word is almost dead in the English language. I mean, it's, it's very rare that we use it except in a biblical context. And so people who, uh, who, who uh, maybe haven't spent their lives in church may not know exactly what reproof is. Uh, it's a word that we rarely, if ever, use. But nevertheless, it's the word that the translators, uh, or most translators, used when they were translating our Bibles. Uh, just to give us a working definition of reproof, uh, especially for you kids, reproof is a circumstance or a situation that God brings into the lives of his children to convict us of sin and failures and shortcomings. And the purpose of reproof is to prompt us and to motivate us to turn away from whatever sin or shortcoming that might be. And while it would be great if reproof was painless and didn't affect us negatively at all, didn't hurt our feelings or anything like that, the reality is that reproof is often, if not usually, but not always, uh, involving going through some very painful circumstances in life, painful and difficult circumstances. The question is, what is the factor that determines whether reproof is painful or not? Usually, I'd say probably at least nine times out of ten, probably nine times out of ten, maybe eight times out of ten, or four times out of five if you're a mathematician, uh, the way that we respond to it is what makes the difference. The way that we respond to it. We can accept it by making the necessary changes to our lives, or we can ignore it, we can reject it, and continue in our behavior. So with this personal choice in mind, I mean, Solomon knew. He was a real person. He, he knew what it was like. He knew that there was a personal choice. And with that in mind, he wrote this. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 31. He said, He whose ear listens to the life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. So the issue of accepting reproof is actually one of the main themes in the book of Proverbs. But the first thing that I want us to see here is that Solomon makes an, an implied distinction between good and bad reproof. Because the fact is, not all reproof is created equally. There's good reproof and there is bad reproof. There's, uh, to, to use Solomon's terminology, there's life-giving reproof just as surely as there is life-ending reproof. Uh, the difference is based solely on the outcome of the reproof. The difference between good reproof and bad reproof is that good reproof will make you a better person. It'll lead you away from sin. It'll lead you away from uh, things that God doesn't want you to be. Or bad reproof will lead you towards sin and rebellion. Maybe even deeper sin and rebellion. So that's the difference between good reproof and bad reproof. The second thing that I want us to see here is that the person who sees all reproof as negative just says, oh, don't be a hater, without even really listening to what was said to him, you know, uh, don't hate, you know, but I'm not going to listen to what you just said. The person who sees all reproof as negative and thus doesn't listen to it is unwise. 
They're unwise. It's not a good decision. And we've probably all been there and done that. Every one of us has probably ignored reproof at one point and just said, I don't need that. I mean, if you've, ever, if you've never been criticized, maybe it's because you didn't open your ears long enough to recognize what it was. But even Jesus was criticized. Even the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day tried to rebuke him, tried to, to offer him reproof and correction, although it was unjust criticism. Uh, but clearly, he heard what was said to him because he was consistently able to defend himself and rebuke his critics. So why, why do we tend to resist any and all criticism? The first thing I think it all boils down to, and most of the time this is what it is, is an issue of pride. In order to lend our ears to this life-giving reproof, we first have to humble ourselves. Oh, there's that word. Now, that's not easy. We have to humble ourselves enough to recognize that there are things about us that aren't perfect, things about us that we don't even see, but which others might see plain as day. I think most of us have the same attitude toward any and all reproof uh, that most people have about stepping onto a scale. You know, you get about as excited about receiving reproof as you do about getting on the scale, especially after the holidays. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, Does anyone actually enjoy getting on the scale? Listen, people who, who need a scale hate getting on the scale. And I am speaking from, uh, from experience here. But without a scale, there is, uh, you know, if, if you're trying to lose weight uh, or, or gain weight, you know, some people, some people do try to, try to gain weight, and they need the scale because the scale is an objective measure of where they stand. And without the scale, there's no celebrating small victories, you know, if you're trying to lose weight and you lose some, and there's no way to know that you had too many treats over the Christmas season. A second reason, so, so the, the first reason is pride. Uh, people get prideful about stepping on the scale because, uh, I don't need that. I'm going to be fine, right? The second reason that I think people resist reproof is fear. Fear. Um, the American Cancer Society, for example, spends millions and millions and millions of dollars every year, year in and year out, promoting the life-saving benefits of getting regular medical exams, getting a physical, and, and they've got these take-home tests sometimes, you know, these home screening exams, and yet... Thousands of people, thousands and thousands of people, refuse to take these tests regularly. And therefore, these thousands of people die at an earlier age than they needed to. If they just would have heeded that advice, if they just would have said, oh, you know, well, I, you know, I may as well know so that I can do something about it. If only they would have done that, they could have prolonged their lives. But the thing is, they didn't take the advice. Why? I mean, that, that obviously doesn't have a whole lot to do with pride. It has to do with fear, I think. Plain and simple, fear. People don't want to hear bad news, even if that bad news will prolong their lives. And there are, there are so many studies out there that show that. People don't want to hear any bad news, even if it'll save their lives. A third reason is laziness. If somebody gives you know, some good advice, that person who's on the receiving end of that good advice might actually have to exert some effort to change their ways, to turn around in their lives. And so we come up with sayings, you know, uh, to deflect any criticism, like, well, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. 
Now, whoever, whoever came up with that saying, by the way, obviously, uh, did not know anything about working with dogs. Uh, because, man, when I, when I was a kid, um, you know, I, there was a dog that I, I grew up with, and eventually she got so old that she lost her hearing. And so, you know, I, I've got, you know, I was working on my degree in psychology, behavioral psychology, and within 15 minutes, I taught her all of her, new, all of her same tricks that she'd known all of her life with hand signals. So you can teach an old dog new tricks. If a dog is loyal to their master, they'll learn. They'll learn. Um, the other night, my wife, I'm, I'm sitting in here writing my sermon, you know, coming up with, you know, what I'm going to talk about today. And uh, Christina comes over, and as she's leaving, she says, oh, by the way, make sure that you're really careful on these steps out here, out back, because they're, they're starting to get icy. And uh, I, I heard her. I heard it. And when I left, I took one step on that top step, and my feet went up, and I went all the way down the stairs. Now, I knew that they were getting icy. By the way, I didn't get hurt. I got a little scratch right here from trying to hold onto the rail, and don't know how that happened. I mean, I hit my head, but you know, there was nothing there. Yeah, that doesn't surprise. That doesn't surprise anybody, right? But the thing is, knowing that the steps back there were icy, I very easily could have gone to these steps out front. But I was lazy. Those are the steps I always use. Those are close. You know, I don't want to take the extra 20 steps to go over to this door over here. Laziness. Laziness. So I I refuse to heed that advice out of laziness. And that's the third reason that people don't heed reproof. So whether we ignore reproof due to pride, fear, or laziness, it doesn't matter what our reason for ignoring correction is. It is unwise. It is unwise. And that's saying it really nicely, by the way. Solomon, you you can put this down. Solomon was not as nice as your pastor. Solomon said it this way, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Now, last night, I, I, was, uh, I, I told my wife about that, and she said, which translation are you using? I said, no, that's the NASB, I promise. That's, that's right out of, that's the word he uses. Whoever hates reproof is stupid. See, that, that, I, did, I wasn't that mean. I wasn't that uh, abrupt or, um, or abrasive. But notice here that the word discipline is the word that parallels reproof in, in this context. Discipline, reproof, correction, instruction, these are all concepts and actions that are closely related in Solomon's wisdom literature. And Solomon's saying that to reject discipline is to reject knowledge. To reject discipline is to reject knowledge, which is the same thing as embracing stupidity. Embracing stupidity, which is just another way, I guess, of saying reject knowledge. So instead of saying, oh, you know, uh, that so-and-so sure is stupid, we'll say, oh, that so-and-so sure rejects knowledge uh, because that seems so much nicer. Solomon's saying that if you love knowledge, you have to love discipline. If you hate being corrected or criticized, Solomon says you're stupid. (laughs) And coming from the wisest man who ever lived... That's some solid advice. But I do want, I, I do want us to notice here that, uh, that Solomon's saying he, he, stupidity here isn't presented as something that someone is by default. Rather, stupidity is a choice. 
That'd be a great title for a future sermon, wouldn't it? Or, or a book? Stupidity is a choice. I can see, you know, I'll write this book called Stupidity is a Choice, and you know, I'll be a bestseller right next to Joel Osteen's, you know, Make You a Better You. Uh, <laughs> number two, stupidity is a choice. Anyway, the, the irony of this particular proverb is that people who pride themselves on being intelligent and full of knowledge are much, much more likely to avoid being corrected. That's because it's difficult to be both extremely intelligent and to be humble. And kids, I'm speaking from experience. I'm just kidding. Oh, come on. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't saying that I'm intelligent and humble. I'm saying if I was intelligent, it would be hard to be humble. Anyway, the difficult thing about humility, and I, the more I thought about this, the more it made sense to me. The, the, the difficult thing about humility is that it seems like it's a destination that requires that you already be there in order to get there. Does that make sense? In other words, to practice humility requires humility, right? So all we can hope to do, all we can determine in our minds and in our hearts to do is to grow in humility and determine to refuse to think too highly of ourselves. And once we can bring ourselves to that point, once we do that, I think that what we find is that we become a lot more open to receiving reproof or correction. And I think that's exactly why Solomon writes, continuing here in Proverbs chapter 15, verses 32 to 33, He who neglects discipline despises himself, but he who listens to reproof acquires understanding. The fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom, and before honor comes humility. Now those first words, he who neglects discipline despises or or hates himself, uh, those first words should shock anyone who has ever neglected discipline before. And guess what? That's, That's every single one of us. At some point in all of our lives, we've, we've neglected discipline. We, we've refused to hear it, right? We, we've all, you know, maybe somebody offered some advice or some correction, and we thought to ourselves, hey, wait a minute. Uh, I, I, know, I know better than, than that person does. They don't even know me. Who are they to try to correct me, right? We, we've all said that. Or maybe if, if you're under 20, uh, you say, haters don't hate. Don't hate, right? But remember... I love haters, right? Remember, in the previous verse, verse 31, one's willingness to receive correction, one's willingness to receive reproof is directly correlated to whether or not they will dwell among the wise. See, when we refuse to receive correction, not only are we foolish, not only are we arrogant, the opposite of humble, Uh, And not only are we disrespectful to the person who has offered correction, but Solomon says, obviously, you hate yourself. You don't have yourself in your own best interests if you neglect discipline. Who's the hater now? Conversely, then, the person who's willing to receive rather than reject or neglect discipline or correction obviously loves themselves, obviously cares about themselves, Right? They're being a good steward with what God has entrusted them with, themselves. They want what's best for themselves. They want what's in their own best interest, even if it isn't the most appealing thing in the whole world. And change never is. Change never is. It never seems easy. Sometimes you look at it and you say, I I just can't do it. It's going to be too hard. 
But look at the contrast that Solomon makes for us here. He says, but the person who listens to reproof acquires understanding. Lack of understanding is actually one of the most common sources of conflict and anxiety in our lives. But Solomon is telling us here that at the root of a lack of understanding is an outright refusal to listen. An outright refusal to listen. A great illustration of the human resistance toward reproof is seen in the relationships between the prophets and the people in the Old Testament. The prophets would warn the people, and what was the response of the people? They'd ignore them. Shut up, dude, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to change. You know, I'm, I'm happy doing things the way that I'm doing things. And so what they do is they would ignore them until they couldn't stand it anymore, at which point they'd seek to harm them or maybe even kill them. The prophet Jeremiah, for example, looked at the people and he saw that they loved their ways, they loved their laws, their temples, uh, their rituals, and he saw that they were trusting in those things too much. And so he cried out to the nation of Israel that they had allowed their blessings to turn into curses because they had idolized these blessings. They had turned these blessings into the the things that they worshipped, the things that they came to the temple to, to celebrate. Oh, look at us. They're celebrating their blessings. And so rather than focusing on the giver of those blessings, they're focusing on the gifts of the giver. And so we read in Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 1 to 8, this is what the Lord, this is what the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord said, stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message, quote, Hear the word of the Lord, all you peoples of Judah, who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, which was probably a song that they sang back then. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the alien, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your forefathers forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless, because that's all they offered God was words. They weren't trusting in God. They were trusting in the words that they gave to God, that they offered to God. That's where their faith was, but their words were deceptive because it wasn't a true reflection of what was going on in their hearts. But what's he doing as he's standing outside the gates saying this to the people? He's offering them reproof. He's giving the people reproof. The people had grown complacent at best, or stagnant, or dead in their faith in God. And it was in their best interest to turn back to God, to focus on the giver of the gifts, rather than the gifts themselves, that they had been blessed with. That would have opened the gates of heaven for more blessings to be poured out on them. But the people, by and large, neglected to heed his advice, to heed Jeremiah's reproof. And that's why when we get to chapter 11, we find the Lord telling Jeremiah, there's a conspiracy among the people of Judah and those who live in Jerusalem. They have returned to the sins of their forefathers who refused to listen to my words. They have followed other gods to serve them. Both the house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken the covenant I made with their forefathers. Therefore, 
Here's the consequence. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will bring on them a disaster that they cannot escape. Although they cry out to me, I will not listen to them. Notice, they didn't listen to him, and now he's not going to listen to them. He says, the towns of Judah and the people of Jerusalem will go and cry out to the gods to whom they burn incense, but they will not help them at all when disaster strikes. That's from Jeremiah chapter 11, verses 9 to 12. The prophet Amos, same thing. He said, they hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks with integrity. That's Amos chapter 5, verse 10. That was the response that the prophets received for offering godly reproof back then. And that's what will happen today as well. All too often when we offer godly reproof to others or when people offer godly reproof to us. Now back to what Solomon said here in the book of Proverbs. He says, He who neglects discipline despises himself, but he, uh, but he who listens to reproof acquires understanding. The fear of the Lord is the, understand, is the instruction for wisdom, and before honor comes humility. And this is, this is maybe, maybe this falls under the issue of pride, making yourself number one instead of listening to God. But this is what ultimately reproof boils down to. Fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord. The person who receives good reproof and doesn't change their ways has no fear of the Lord. No fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord itself should be motivation to keep us humble. And what we see throughout the stories of the prophets in the Old Testament is that God has two ways of offering reproof to us. First of all, there's God's word, which Paul told Timothy in his, le- in his letter to Timothy is profitable for reproof. That's what the Bible is. That's what the scriptures are. They're profitable for reproof. The second way is that God sometimes will send somebody to warn us and to remind us of the necessity of turning away from our sins. Sometimes he'll send a person to offer us reproof because we're not getting it in his word. And that's one of the, by the way, one of the great benefits of marriage, isn't it? I mean, only a holy and perfect God would put two sinners under one roof as a means of growing each one of them in holiness. Is that crazy? It works. That's God's design for marriage. So how do we respond to reproof? Knowing that sometimes reproof is good and sometimes it's not. First of all, I think we have to make the intentional decision to listen to it. You know, we have this tendency to just put a filter up and, you know, I'm not going to hear it. You know, it might fall on my ears, but, you know, it's, you know, gobbledygook to me. It doesn't mean anything to me. I'm not going to hear it. Even the bad stuff. See, we can, we can all expect reproof. We can all expect correction to come at us at some point because none of us is perfect. You didn't need me to tell you that, did you? No, because we all know it. Every single one of us is flawed. Because of the fallen nature of humanity, each one of us inherited, every single one of us is, is going to, to, to make mistakes. It's just the way it is. Sometimes there'll be big mistakes. Sometimes there'll be small mistakes. Sometimes there'll be huge mistakes. Been there, done that. And it happens to everybody. Selfishness, poor decision-making, or carelessness will strain relationships you have with other people. Sometimes they will break relationships that you have with other people. Sometimes it will cause incredible strain on marriages if if you're married. It, It happens. However, while mistakes are inevitable, 
Mistakes are inevitable. But even though they are inevitable, they're not unforgivable. They're not unforgivable. It takes humility. For forgiveness to happen, there, there needs to be some humility. So God understands our, our, our weaknesses. He understands our shortcomings. And that's why he provided a means of forgiveness to us by sending his only son, Jesus, to die for our sins. To offer forgiveness to us by grace through faith. That's what grace is all about. So listen to reproof. We've, we've got to listen to reproof. That's the first thing. We've got to listen to reproof because most of the time, if we're willing to take correction, the worst case scenario is just personal repentance. Most of the time. Sometimes a little bit more. but Usually it's just personal repentance if, they catch, if we catch it early enough. Number two, um, I, I want to do more than, than just encourage you to, to listen to reproof. I want to encourage all of us to welcome it, to be hungry for it, to, to, to be eager to be reproved. Seek it out. Be eager to be corrected. And that, wow, that requires an incredible amount of humility. But you'd better believe that every single one of us has a blind spot. Every single one of us has flaws that maybe we don't even realize we have. That's scary. Because we think we know ourselves so well. No. There are things in us that other people see that we can't see all the time. We all have faults and shortcomings about ourselves that we have a tendency to either forget all about or to overlook completely. David said this, Psalm chapter 139, verse 23. He said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And I'm convinced that David didn't pray this prayer because he knew that he was perfect. He didn't pray this prayer because he knew that he had a clean heart and he was already walking in the way everlasting. He prayed this prayer because he knew that he'd gone wrong somewhere. He knew that he had made a wrong move somewhere, but he he couldn't exactly put his finger on exactly what it was. And so he asks God, he wanted God to search him so that God would know his heart. He's asking God, find the offensive ways in me, because I've looked, I can't find them, but I know they're there. So God, please, find them in me. See, God, uh, or, or David didn't just listen to or even accept reproof. He intentionally sought it out. He was eager for it. He asked for it. And we'd be wise to do the same. You see, if if we allow fragile egos, maybe personal vendettas, uh, laziness, fear of of consequences or fear of change to cause us to neglect reproof or ignore correction, we can expect consequences in our lives. I guarantee it. There will be consequences. How can I be so sure? Proverbs chapter 29, verse 1. A man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken Beyond remedy. A man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. In other words, before that point, before the reproof, you were not beyond remedy. If you don't harden your neck, you won't be beyond. That's another way of standing your ground and saying, I don't need to listen to you. You won't be beyond remedy. 
So you can get angry or you can get bitter about you know, receiving reproof. That's the natural tendency that I think all of us have, that you know, everybody has. But Solomon tells us what the consequence is. You will become so broken, you will never be able to put yourself back together. An illustration of this. I'm going to try to pronounce this right. Katsuhiko Ishibashi is a well-respected professor at the university, uh, at Kobe University in Japan. And since the early 2000s, he had been warning Japan that the country's many nuclear uh, facilities and nuclear power plants were in danger of some serious damage or maybe even a meltdown because they had been located, they'd been built in earthquake-prone areas. He once said, quote, I think the situation right now is very scary. It's like a kamikaze terrorist wrapped in bombs just waiting to explode. End quote. And of course, we all know what happened two years ago. March 11th, 2011, that's exactly what happened. An enormous earthquake rattles Japan. A tsunami wave comes toward Japan, and it hits the power plants, resulting in a level 7 international nuclear event scale disaster, which is the highest level nuclear disaster possible. When somebody offers you reproof, maybe it's because there's a tsunami wave coming your way if you don't change. And I don't want that to be me. And I don't want it to be you either. Know this. God will use adversity. He'll use painful, if necessary, and difficult, if necessary, circumstances to strengthen us and to discipline us. Every single one of us. Whether we want it or not. Whether we're resistant to it or not, we will get it. We will get it one way or the other, whether that's through consequences or whether it's just through our own wisdom of heeding the advice that we receive, the good advice that we receive. God will use adversity to strengthen us, and he will discipline every child he receives, right? That's what the book of Hebrews says. Third, the way that you can determine uh, whether there's any merit um, to whether the reproof is good is to evaluate it. So that's the third thing that you need to do. First thing is... Listen to it. Second thing, welcome it. Third thing, evaluate it. How does it line up with God's Word? How does it line up with the Bible? Will it lead you closer to personal holiness? Or is it going to lead you into rebellion? I was talking with a friend the other night on Facebook, and he told me that he had gone to a brother in Christ to offer reproof, and the response that my friend got was that he was acting on behalf of Satan. That's not being open to reproof. That's not, being, that's not being receptive to it at all. As if Satan has this personal interest in our personal holiness, in our sanctification. See, this is a step. This step of evaluating it uh, is a step that requires a lot of wisdom, godly wisdom. We need God's insight in order to determine whether there's any merit to somebody else's criticism or correction or reproof in our lives. But here's the catch. You can't do it on your own. You can't do it on your own. If you're the only one who evaluates the criticism you receive, you are counting on having perfect clarity of your, your perfect, uh, perfect clear perception of yourself. And none of us has it. We've all got shortcomings that we don't even realize, but other people in our lives, people who love us or maybe people who can't stand us, can see. And so I would encourage each of us to consult with three specific people when evaluating reproof. First of all, you need to consult God. 
you need to consult God. You need to pray. Pray about it. Pray, pray David's prayer, if nothing else. I, I double-dog dare you. I, I, I triple-dog dare you. That's the one that caused the kid in Christmas story to lick the pole, right? Wasn't it a triple-dog dare? <laughs> I triple-dog dare you. Pray David's prayer. And <laughs> speaking from, uh, I can assure you, based on, on personal experience, I'm speaking from personal experience here, David's prayer is a prayer that God is more than happy to answer. He is more than happy to answer it. So be forewarned. Search my heart, God. Show me what, reveal my offenses. Bring all that yucky stuff in my heart to the surface. Show it to me. And get it out of me. So the first person to to consult is God. Pray about it. Secondly, seek out a trustworthy friend who loves the Lord. If you're married, it should be your spouse. If you're not married, find somebody who loves the Lord. Somebody who has the freedom and knows that they have the freedom, by the way, to be brutally honest with us and isn't afraid to cut to the chase, even if they know that it's going to hurt your feelings. They just they have that freedom. You've given them the, the, like a blank check. Go ahead. Say what needs to be said. Tell me, tell me what you think about what this person said. Solomon understood that having this type of friendship, this type of a relationship with someone, was completely necessary, which is why he wrote in Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Which would you rather receive? Wounds or kisses? Wounds. That's what Solomon's saying. If you don't have a friend who has the freedom to wound you with honesty, you don't have a friend. Just like if I go to a doctor who sees that I have cancer, but he doesn't want to tell me, I don't have a doctor. I may as well have gone to the circus. Right? I don't have a doctor. Real deep friendships will sometimes bring praise, but sometimes they require woundedness. But those wounds are necessary. Or as Solomon says, they're faithful. Every one of us needs a friend like that. So first, consult with God. Second, consult with a friend who loves the Lord. Third, and finally, consult with yourself. Look in the mirror. Now, I'm not saying just, what are you feeling right now about it? I'm saying, be honest with yourself. And look back over your life and see... Is there a cycle of this same thing happening over and over? Do you see a pattern in your life where you know, you're, you're having strained relationships or you're, you're having trouble at work or you know, whatever it might be? Is there a cycle? Is there a pattern? Is there something that's consistently happened throughout your life that you've been blaming somebody else for? And maybe the fact that there's a pattern reveals that the problem is with you. I've been there. I've done that. Ask yourself, what can I do to avoid falling into this same cycle over and over again in the future? But you've got to be honest. You've got to be honest, and that requires being humble. Our fourth response is to act on legitimate proof, uh, reproof. Act on it. If you've done this evaluation of it, if you've heard it, You've welcomed it, you've evaluated it, and you find that there's even an ounce of truth in it, 
then do something about it. But don't do it alone. Don't do it alone. Find somebody that you can hold yourself accountable to, at least one other person, and of course God. Hold yourself accountable to somebody and entrust your reproofs to them and to God. Solomon put it this way, For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. Caleb, remember that. The only way we're going to be able to consistently resist the urge to neglect, to ignore correction in our lives, is to trust that God has allowed us to be on the receiving end of that criticism, of that reproof, for a good reason. We have to trust that we've, been, that we've received reproof as a means by which God is seeking to lead us to a deeper level of personal holiness. There's a purpose for correction. Call them haters, call them whatever you want, but you've got to learn to listen, and you've got to trust God with what's being thrown your way. Wisdom, uncommon sense, dictates that we must learn to humble ourselves and to welcome, invite, reproof into our lives. And may experiencing, growing in, and living out this deeper personal holiness, which we call Christ-likeness, may that be our motivation for changing when criticism is thrown our way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you don't accept us just staying the way we are. You take us the way we are, but you don't leave us there. Like a loving father, you offer correction, reproof, discipline, not as a means of punishing us, but as a means of loving us. And so I pray, God, that you would give us a spirit of humility and a willingness to be on the receiving end of reproof and criticism. God, teach us to evaluate criticism wisely. And we pray, Lord, that you would search the depths of our heart and find any imperfections in us. Bring them to the surface. Show them to us. Get, get those things out of us so that we can become more and more like your son, Jesus, in order that you can be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. When we see you, when we see you, when we see you.
Desire will be complete.